Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapter 6 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Chapter 6 Over the Sea I walked across broad fields and over peat bogs on wicker tracks. Rocky hills rose along the west, and the rising path took me up to broad views under a clear sky. I stopped two more nights at kindly cottages, blessing and gaining blessings from those who would take grace from a penitent monk. At last the hills descended to the first object of my journey. Stone walls crisscrossed the fields, dividing cattle and sheep, and among the houses was a church with a high cross. Flowing away beyond was the great river. Here there were enough strong farms to host a cattle market every year, and every other year or so, a ship came to expand the market's wares to include kernstones, wine, furs, iron, copper, tin, and bronze. The market, opening with a great dance and ending with horse races, was the highlight of one's life. I had arrived in Derry, and the river would take me to the sea, if sailors were willing to take me. The sounds of the community, over fifty people, echoed among large houses with more than one room, built of wood and stone. Children and dogs ran up to me as I made my way, herding me, asking my name, the dogs running back and forth, the children tugging. Men pushed their way through the children to take my hand, while the women tried in vain to pull the children back. We headed for the church, and the priest was quickly brought. Father Wynne was a small, pot-bellied man with a short, blonde beard who looked like a gnome from pagan days. He slapped me on the back and shook my hand vigorously. Welcome to Derry, friend. Who might you be, and what brings you this way? I am Connachtoch MacNeil of Connacht. I'm on my way to take the vow of white martyrdom at Iona. If God would grant it, I ask for a boat to take me to the monastery. There was a murmur. The priest said, It is late in the year to take to the sea. We must talk to the king. He's riding now, but will return by nightfall. Let us have a prayer. After the prayer, they went out and set up tables and benches, so that all could feast on pork, apples, bread, and peas. A chill wind blew in from the sea, refreshing our senses dulled by ale and food. There were many voices and the trill of birds, and I felt a little dizzy with the commotion and my tiredness. When the king and his thanes rode in on their fine black horses against the red sky of the setting sun, 
torches were lit. King Donal was thick, tall, an oak tree of a man, with a broken nose and big, beefy hands that clasped mine in a firm grasp. Welcome, brother Canochtoch. Let's eat and drink and save business for the daylight. The king sat beside me, his six children gathering around, and he brushed them off like persistent flies. But they wanted a story and would not be denied. He quaffed his ale and raised his hand, big enough to easily be seen in the twilight, and the crowd fell quiet, anticipating a tale to take them into the night. Hagen the fisherman was out to sea, and too far out from shore he was. A mist came over, a grey, heavy mist, and he heard the voice of a woman, a beautiful voice, and it spoke and called his name. Hagen, Hagen the fisherman, come to me, Hagen. And he looked, and a little away from him the mist parted, and he saw beneath the water a beautiful woman with black eyes and long black hair floating around her face. She looked at him from below the waves, and she spoke, saying, Follow me. So he rowed far, far out to sea, and the sea rocked. It grew heavy and sprayed all about him. But he ignored the heavy sea and followed the voice that was luring him on. Meanwhile, his companions saw him disappear into the mist, and they sought to follow and stop him. But a great pod of seals surrounded the boats so that they couldn't move, and they could not send their shafts into any of the selkies. So quick they were, swimming in circles all around them. Hagen followed the woman and she called to him to join her in the kingdom below the waves. So he leapt over the side of the boat and drowned in the heavy sea. The mist lifted and his boat drifted back to his companions empty and the seals departed. But the most terrible is when the Selkie, so large and sleek, sits on the rocks and lures a child to it by enchantment. And the child runs as if to play with the changeling seal. And just as the child reaches it, off the seal leaps with a swipe of its tail, and the child tumbles into the water after. What about Hagen? a small girl asked. Well... And so a good and brave friend of Hagen the fisherman went out on the rocks and called forth the Selkie and demanded to know how his friend could be returned. And the seal woman's head rose up above the water and she spoke, saying, Weave a net with no linen or hemp. Catch a fish with no hook or spear. Touch the moon as it shines in its fullness. And she departed, so he thought. After he thought a while, 
He pulled all the seaweed off the rocks and off the beach, and wove his net from the seaweed. He went out in the deep night with his seaweed net, and caught fish with no hook or spear. And in the night the shining moon reflected on the water, and he touched it. Just as he touched the shining reflection of the moon, his friend Hagen burst up through the waves, retching and nearly drowned. His friend threw the net around him and pulled him into the boat. And that was the only time ever a man returned from the changeling seal's watery doom. That night, I dreamt Una and I were children riding in a small boat. A storm rose, blackening the water, and the boat rocked in the fierce waves. Suddenly, Una stood up, pointing. The boat pitched, and she was hurled overboard. I scrambled to the side, shouting her name as the water swirled and rain lashed my face. Then I heard the sound of a distant bell. A huge yellow moon rose through the waves. The moon in the water turned into Una's face. I reached and clasped her hand, pulling her up from the depths. When she burst through the surface, I awoke. I had slept in the priest's house, where a silver cross hung over the table, gleaming in the firelight. It was the first thing I saw when I opened my eyes. It flashed as Father Wynne stoked the fire and stirred a pot of mash, his smile gentle and glowing. I thought I would like to tell him about the dream, about home and the people I left behind, but as I was deciding, there was a knock on the door. The priest let in the king. So it's to Iona you need to go, he asked, sitting on a bench. And why so far? There are monasteries here. I was there before, as a boy, but my father required me to return. My father has passed on. I have always planned to go to Iona, and finish my life there. What does Iona have for you? I wished I still had the scribing to show him. They have a large library and a scriptorium. I am a scribe. Though it has been many years, I still remember. My Latin is still good. I seek to offer my labor in this to God. It is truly a holy mission. It is late to travel over the sea. My words rushed out in nervous excitement. This is a blessed cause. I plan to scribe a great new gospel, a holy book, something that will live forever. God has called me to fulfill this destiny. Your men will be most blessed if they help me. Truly, they could not do anything more deserving of grace. The king ate his bowl of mash quietly. With a nod, he said, Let me inquire. He went back out. I wondered if he would let me speak to the men. It is strange to me now. 
I never expected no for an answer. I never thought there would be any difficulty, though I was asking to travel a long way at sea in winter. I thought God would still the waves for me. The king returned. I have seven men here, seven brothers who sailed together in the big Karach. They say they are willing, as it will be a blessed mission. They will need help across the sea, and will find more sailors in Port Bailentra. They know the way, all the way to Iona. It is a hard voyage. We hope it will secure a great blessing to take you to your calling. You will pray for us at the monastery? Oh, yes, certainly. He brought his hands together. That's it, then. They will be ready to leave tomorrow. We ate some more mash while Father Wynne read from the Bible, making numerous mistakes. I spent much of the day inside the church, and the brothers came to meet me. They were seven strong men in their teens and twenties, taciturn and stoic. The oldest served as their captain. They asked to pray together with Father Wynne. The next morning, everyone gathered on the riverbank to see us off. The river would take us to Loch Foil, a huge loch with a narrow channel that led out to the coast and sea. We would camp for the night at the estuary and then travel along the coast to Port Bailentra before heading north on the open sea. There were prayers, but it was a high song of the sea that echoed from the shore and carried us off. Six men rowed, sitting behind each other, oars on alternate sides, and the captain steered in the stern. We sat tightly together. I was sideways between two stretchers. The calm river slid under the skin of the boat. The men rowed the long, slender oars in quiet, practiced unison. The green land stretched beyond the banks toward distant hills, the leafless autumn trees casting long shadows. John, the captain, turned his head between beats of the oar and asked, What is your home like? I stared at the dotted sheep and cattle on shore. Now it would be stopped in my memory. My sister's hair would never gray. All would be as it was. I was on the river that time emptied into, and this ocean separated me utterly from my home and the years I'd lived there. They have a strong farm. Five head I left to Limar, added to his, and five to my sister. They have nine houses. It's on a stream, with a cross, no church. They have a priest. He was my brother-in-law. It's a fine place they have. And, uh, Iona, have you been there? Aye, we have a great house, where all the monks sleep. It holds a hundred of us. We have a library, and a scriptorium in the house, and barns and more cattle than any strong farm. We have a small lake at the southern end of the island, and a well by the monastery. We have an abbot, if he's the same, Abbot Brezal. 
His hair was white, and he accepted all the privileges of age, but his wiry arms could swing the slaughterer's mallet or fell a tree with the strength of two young men. We have boys at school, and some laborers whose wives live on the island of women across the sound, between Iona and the island of Mull. The beat of the oars continued until the river emptied into the vast loch, and they hoisted the sail. Now the boat flew. The sail with its brown cross bulged overhead, and the sound of it was like a rush of wings, like an echoing drum. The straining ropes made a high-pitched keen as the spray hit our faces. The breeze was strong, and we rose and fell over the waves, each drop bouncing us in our seats. Not hard, but enough to remind me to respect the power of the water and wind. Yet, I felt confident in the skill of our captain and these men, and the gusts of wind slapping my face made me feel happy and alive. At the end of the day, we arrived at the Bonafebhal, the narrow mouth of Lof Fibhal, and a small beach gave us shelter in a cove. The men pulled the boat ashore and flipped it upside down, balanced on the stretchers and oars, to sleep under. They built a fire and cooked a pot of dried fish, pouring milk into it from a skin. The bread was still soft enough to eat. Later on in the journey, the dry hard bread would join the fish and milk in the pot. I gave a blessing over the food. The brothers talked quietly among themselves, but I stayed apart. It was an early morning for the next part of our journey. As the men prepared the boat, John the captain walked a little way down the beach and stared at the sea. I sensed he wanted a word. We'll pick up two more at Port Bailentra to share in the ruin. It will be nine hours from there to Isla, where we'll spend the night. That will be almost halfway. I wonder, Brother Canachtoch, if you would like to share in the rowing for this bit, so that here and there one of our brothers will have a little rest? I rubbed my hand where the boy had slashed it. It was already swollen from the salt spray. The captain's eyes darted to the injury and then back to me. I felt myself flush. I don't know how to do it. I thought of my hands, and that I wanted to keep them protected for the scribing. He gave a downturned smile. It isn't just for the labor, but also to be one of us. I wiped the sweat off my forehead. Of course, I'll try if you want me to. The captain's face was hardened by sun and wind and labor, but kind in years and wisdom. It will be good for you, and a blessing on us, he patted my shoulder. We'll be stopping at a monastery on Isla, and there will be other brothers there for you to meet. We went back to the boat with a word from the captain, and after we pushed off, 
I took a place at one of the oars, while Aid, the youngest, sat in my place to the side. The water had its beat, and in rowing the sailors had their cross beat. I struggled to match the beat of the sailors, splashing myself until my shoulders and back were wet. John began a chant to keep time. I felt like a fool, though the sailors were patient with me. It was perhaps their patience that made me feel foolish. If my father were there, I would know what an incompetent wretch I was. I nodded in time to the chant and pulled. We strummed the water with the slender oars, the music of the sea a vibration in my body, pulling me in its rocking motion. Down and pull and lift and drop into the trough. Three beats and a hard down beat. The music was the water, was the boat, was my own body. When we passed through the mouth of Feebhole and around the point, the captain ordered the sail. The boat shot forward. We rowed again, each pull combining speed with the wind. Now I raised my eyes from the water, aware of the wind and sky. On the sea, in the wind, I was unlocked from the ground. I flew. Gulls and skewers soared above. Up and away from ground, we were all creatures of the wind and water. What of fire then? The sun was a bright haze behind the clouds, low and diffuse, but feverishly warm. The fire was in us, in our glowing, perspiring faces, our sweaty chests, in our rocking beat, climbing the waves. The fire was in my burning shoulders and back, in my palms worn against the wood. My arms circled up and down, in the circle of the ocean. The rhythm was a circle and time was four circling beats, under circling gannets, under the circling sun. Sitting backward, I could not see the destination, only the past shrinking away as the rust-colored cliffs rolled by. But after two hours, the beat that had driven us changed. The captain steered for land and ordered down the sail. I turned my head to see. A crescent harbor curved into a long point. Port Belantra. It was midday, and the low green fields and stone houses glistened, a welcome sight after the harsh cliffs. Along one side of the harbour was a stone quay with wooden posts, where a small crowd had gathered, having seen the boat coming. When the boat was tied to the quay, I stepped out in turn, swaying unevenly. Aid put his arm around me to steady me. A man in the front of the crowd shook hands with the captain. John, I didn't expect ye with winter so close on, he said. John put his hand on my shoulder. This is Connachtoch, on his way to take the vow at Iona. 
Knochtoch, meet Oswi. All eyes were on me, and I tried to stand up straight. I felt I would vomit, and locked my eyes on the horizon, trying to still the swell in me. Oswi said, You're lucky for now. It's unusually calm and mild, but the sea could betray you at any time. We're bound to try, the captain said, and we're looking for two more men to alternate the work with. The first leg to Isla is a long, hard row. Come and eat and rest, and we'll see about it. We moved up the shore. Various karachs and coracles were upturned around the houses. They brought out benches and a pottage of dried fish, the smell strong in the air. I sat between John and Oswi. The glowing faces of the taciturn sailors reminded me of the faces of the monks in my youth, of men who didn't speak much, but felt deeply. As the ale flowed and the women laughed, they repeated the tale of the Selkies, and tales of Fergus, who built the giant's causeway from Hibernia to nearby Staffa. After the feast, John and Oswi talked quietly together, apart from the rest. Oswi called over two boys on the cusp of manhood. Some of the crowd watched and grew quieter. The women ceased laughing. Oswi turned to the group and said, Arkil and Aaron will go. He indicated the two boys. Come, let's not be so grave. We'll have a song. A young man put a pipe to his lips and played a fast jig, and the children danced. A woman approached me. You must go. Wouldn't you like to wait until summer? Her large grey eyes softly loomed at me. I cannot wait. The woman turned and gazed at one of the boys. He was dancing, his brown curls bouncing with each step. She turned her gaze back to me, her face uncertain, her eyes frightened. The seas are heavy this time of year. I have no fear. We are blessed on this mission. I write these words now with shame. At the time, I only folded my arms and nodded with a face blank and ignorant. She looked at me in surprise. I sensed she didn't share my confidence. She seemed to want to say more, not knowing what to say. There are no monasteries where you are from? I smiled in a knowing, fatuous way. Not luck, Iona. There is no other. I will scribe. I said this as if it answered everything. Her face was puzzled and somehow pitying. Now I started to feel uncertain. She crossed herself and walked away toward the dancing children. I sought out the captain, who was admiring a new coracle nearby. Will it be a very rough crossing? The captain tilted his head. Yes, 
You may be sick. I didn't mean that. I meant... I hesitated to finish. The captain looked up calmly. It could be rough. And if we are lost, it is a large portion of dairy men we take, and the two boys, but that is always the risk. We have a mission to honour, and we will. I looked away at the dancing children. The woman who had spoken to me stood with her arms outstretched towards her child, who spun and danced. I held out my hand to John. I'm very grateful to you, to all of you, but we will not be lost. God will watch over you. He took my hand. The risk is yours, too. But you will pray, and we will pray, and we will all be brothers together now, brothers of the sea. The next morning, they asked me for a prayer to bless the voyage and keep the wind steady. Everyone stood together on the beach in silence as I spread my arms in prayer. Dear Lord, and dearest Saint Columba, we ask you to be with us on this journey that we undertake in your name. As you control the wind and move over the sea, we will know your divine presence. We seek only to do your will with all our strength and courage, knowing it is you who provide them to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. We pushed off and raised the sail. The sun was bright over the tarnished bronze sea. Gulls followed us like persistent beggars until an eagle, silent and gliding, swept the scattering gulls away. The eagle circled over the boat, I felt like a protective spirit for a long while. I always saw the signs in my favor. Saint Columba had chosen Iona because when he landed there, he could no longer see Hibernia. I wanted to know the moment that Hibernia was no longer visible. And back. I was going back to a place that was only a dream all these years. On the other side of this sea. The sea so wide, no voice could carry across it. No voice called from one side would reach the other but it would be swallowed by the vast, empty space. The island slipped farther away, the little white houses growing smaller on shore. The sound of the sail died away as the wind slackened. I turned to look ahead, but the way forward was suddenly dense with fog. The captain said, Shall we have another prayer? I glanced at their faces and uttered the same prayer I had spoken when we left. Nothing happened. The fog came closer and enveloped us. The sea began to chop, and we bounced hard in the little boat. The wind sprang alive again, 
and the boat heaved as the sail filled. But it was a twisting wind, and the boat spun. Quickly they worked to lower the sail. Bouncing, spinning, we rode to counter the waves and wind. The fog lifted to reveal a school of basking sharks, churning the water, their round, stretched, open mouths the size of a man's head, lined with concentric teeth. One swam under the boat, its fin scraping the thin hide of the bottom. It came up and turned to eye us. So proud of your teeth, Arya, the captain shouted. The wind blew harder and the waves rose in steep hills. As we came down from a heavy chop with a hard thud, the young boy Aaron suddenly pivoted over his oar and flew out of the boat. I grabbed it before it slid away. Aaron! Grab the oar! Here it is! Grab it! We couldn't see him in the grey waves and mist. The captain struck his bell to give the boy a clue where the boat was. I pulled the oar through the water. Grab hold! Then I prayed with words that sprang without thought, my voice hoarse and choked. Oh God, have mercy, we are nothing but dust, sinners, and as men the weakest of all creatures, oh God, have mercy, have mercy, because we are all guilty and our boat is so small, our boat is so small. We were like a reed in the surging current. The bell echoed loudly in my brain, the sound that had to tell Aaron where to swim. The circling sharks churned the water. All was chaos. We were all wet with the fog and spray. The looming, frightened eyes of Aaron's mother filled my mind. I had promised her God's blessing. This was my promise. I couldn't pass it off to God. It was up to me as God's instrument, as the one who promised. We rowed against the chop to keep the boat in place. There was a shadow in the waves. Not knowing if it was man or beast, I aimed the oar towards it. Something weighed down the end. I pulled. It seemed a long while that the six-foot oar came into the boat, inch by inch. It grew heavier in my hands. There were arms and legs, hands and a face. I pulled the boy in, the boat tipping close to capsizing, but the others steadied it with all their skill. The end of the oar was bitten off. The boy fell into the boat face down, blood pouring from his foot. I slapped his back until he coughed and retched, groaning above the sound of the waves. We turned him over and tore strips from our tunics to bind his bleeding foot. The foot wasn't entirely gone. He'd lost his little toe. Am I alive? He said between gasps. I pulled him into my arms and hugged him to warm his body. I felt sick and dazed and ached all over as we bumped up and down. 
You're alive, thanks to Connachtoch, John said. This only filled me with shame. The fog began to turn into droplets of a light rain as it lifted, and more of the great sea extended around us. The fog became lighter and more transparent, until it trickled away and some blue appeared in the sky. I didn't know which way was which in the vast grey sea. The heaving waves died down and my stomach began to settle where it belonged. Tall brown islands of rock rose in the distance, and the captain steered with a confident face. Aaron lay down as best he could in the crowded boat. The sailors resumed their chant. Now it was only effort, our effort, alone in the sea. It was still hours of rowing, even when we could raise the sail again. We took turns, changing twice an hour, at any time two men resting. It was colder now, but it was heavy work, and I sweated. When I was too exhausted to think about how far it was or where I was going, the captain said, The tide won't let us go to the lee side of the island. It's the ocean side for us. I looked up. There was a green island at last. We had reached Isla. But there was still some way to go as we headed with the tide around to the western half. I wondered where we could find port among the straight brown cliffs. But the captain knew, and steered us toward a tiny beach. On the ocean side of the island, the chop was heavy, and we fought to head to the sandy stretch. Then we hit the racing tide, and were almost thrown onto the beach. We pulled the boat ashore, and all knelt in a silent, spontaneous prayer of thanks. I carried Aaron up the beach to a grassy spot. A light appeared above us in the dusk. Two monks came down the hill onto the beach, one carrying a torch. The monks were freshly shaven and tonsured, their faces smooth as shells, shiny in the twilight. Peace to you, brothers. I am Brother Soane, and this is Brother James. We saw you on the water. Will you come to the monastery and be fed? Our guest house is small, but we have a pot on the fire. Captain John answered, We have a wounded boy. If you could dress his wound properly, we'd be grateful. We'll be grateful for a meal, and if you have one to spare, an oar, as we lost one to a shark. Our brother here, Knochtoch, is seeking to become a monk. You seek to join us here? Still breathing heavily, I put my hand over my heart. No, Brother Sone, I am on my way to Iona, but I would like to stay for a day, if my brothers here would give me the time. I have a favor to ask of you, an offering I seek to make. Brother James said, 
Do you know of the happenings at Iona? No. They no longer have a master scribe. I remembered my old teacher. Has Luke passed on? No, but he has suffered a stroke. He's blind. He taught me. He taught me not just the skill, but the joy. I blinked back tears, trembling, overwhelmed by everything. Let us pray, Brother Sohn said. He led us in prayer while I felt dizzy from hunger and the hard hours that had passed. Then the monks led us up the hill and across the island to their house. Brother James carried Aaron into their infirmary. A pot hung over the fire in their stone hall, and the smell of stewed pork filled the air when they joined the twenty monks of the small monastery. We ate in silence, except for the echoing words of Brother Sohn, who read from the gospel. We huddled together in the tiny guesthouse. It was a cold night, and I clung to the thin blanket, wrapping it around myself. The next morning, Brother Sohn came to me. I knelt before him. I have a great favor to ask. The brother motioned for me to speak. I intended to bring a parchment of my scribing, to show the abbot at Iona, to prove myself. I had one, but lost it on this journey. May I spend the day here, and have the use of your scriptorium, to write a new one? The brother beamed at me. I felt my heart lighten. But... Sone replied, It is up to the abbot. I will bring you to him. A sharp wind blew outside. We took a small path between the church and the vallum to a small stone house. The tunnel-like path seemed to focus the wind into us, and the crashing sea nearby was loud as Sone knocked on the abbot's door. A voice said something inaudible over the wind and sea, and we entered. The house was one large room. A low fire glowed in the hearth, immediately attracting my attention because I was so cold. The abbot, a middle-aged man, frail and desiccated-looking, stood at his desk. The next thing I noticed was the stack of vellum on the desk. I knelt, and the abbot blessed me. Sohn explained my journey. How may we assist you? the abbot asked. He had grey, watery eyes. For a moment, he looked like something that had been left on the beach by the sea, something worn away, salt-dried, wet at the edges. The last remains of something that now in its final state, would never change. I swallowed. If I may scribe a page in your scriptorium, father, to present to the abbot at Iona, I would be so grateful. The abbot coughed. 
Vellum is precious. Perhaps if you would work in return for it. Yes, of course, father. My knees hurt on the cold stone floor. And you may confess to Brother Solm. He will find you something to do. Very well. I kissed his dry, bony hand, and we went out. I hoped Solm would assign me to work with the cellarer in the kitchen, where it would be warm. But Solm sent me to cut peat with James. We worked in silence in the raw wind, with the crack of the shovels and the sucking sound of the wet peat as it pulled away from the ground. We worked until it was time to eat. Joined by the sailors, we ate a cold meal of bread and cheese. The abbot read to us from the gospel in a hoarse, wind-stolen voice. That night, in the guesthouse, I could not get warm and lay awake, shivering. The next morning, Sohn brought me to the scriptorium. It was a stone-built room with narrow glass windows. There was one page of vellum waiting for me on the slant-topped desk, a horn of ink, and three quills. Respecting the silence, I nodded my thanks to Sohn and went to work. Two other scribes were there, and the abbot entered. He read out psalms in slow, measured tones, and we copied from his dictation. In the black ink, I saw the black sea, the rolling waves, the flying skewers, the pitch of the sea, and the long trial of this journey. I had to keep my hands from shaking. That night, I asked Son to hear my confession as an Amchara, a brother of the heart. The monk nodded, and we went outside. It was dark on the hilltop, with only a sliver of the moon. I need to confess, but I am unsure whether the sin was mine. I explained about leaving my family behind parting in bad feelings, and the injury to Aaron. I didn't mention his mother's eyes. Brother Sohn listened, looking away with a distracted air. When I finished, the brother's face grew stern. What do you seek? I seek absolution, I suppose. But I don't know that... It was really my sin. You suppose? Do you think you are somehow free of sin? The brother's eyes narrowed under a furrowed brow. And what of the murder in your heart? The little everyday murders of the flawed soul? We are born in sin. You seek pardon by asking me to help you escape your responsibility. If God was working through me, if I was only fulfilling his plan, oh, then you deny free will entirely. No, I... I don't know. Of course I believe we have will, 
We choose whether to sin or not. Is there pride in your heart? Do you hate? Do you lust? Do you grasp? Sin lives inside you and eats like a worm in the gut. I cannot answer your question. You ask the wrong question. I do think you proud. None of us is above sin. I can hear your confession if you take responsibility. But if you do not, then I cannot help you. Confession is not contingent. It does not say, absolve me just in case I am guilty. Nor can one confess as a formality and expect absolution. Confession springs from remorse that burns in you, an inferno of remorse, seeking the cool water of grace. I say this not as one above sin, but as one who drowns in tears of remorse. For we are all guilty, my brother, you as well as I. I do feel remorse. I didn't mean to deny it. How do you feel about Dermot now? About Limar? I don't know. In the dark, Soane's face wavered, ghost-like. We are commanded to love. Now I think you hate them. We hate those who teach us lessons. Are you afraid? Fear tightened my throat. I don't know. Afraid of punishment? Perhaps. My heart pounded in fear. Soane touched my arm. I ask you one more question. What if there were no punishment? What if I could promise you that you would never be punished for what happened? I'd like to leave you with that thought a while. I remained alone outside in the dark. The wind tore at my thin woolen clothes, stinging the swollen cut on my hand. What if there were no punishment? I imagined such a world. A world where there was no justice, random and chaotic. Anything could happen. Anything. I shook with cold and fear. The world could not be like that. Soane returned, holding something. We did not need to speak. I leaned forward, and Soane lashed me with a bundle of long, pliable twigs that snapped pain across my back. He gave me twelve lashes. The last two bled. That night, the whipping burned into my skin as I lay in bed. The heat spread from my back. I felt warm at last. I fell asleep, bathed in the hot pain. The next morning, Soane walked me to the beach where the sailors waited to go on to Knave Island. Aaron was there with fresh bandages on his foot. 
Shouldn't Aaron be sent home? I whispered to John. He won't hear of it. He wants to be blessed. Something clenched in my chest as I looked over at the boy, whose face was resolute, eager. But if he was that desirous to carry out God's will, I thought, should I stop him? I shrugged off my doubts, sinner that I was. Soan and I embraced. He asked, Tell me, what is the one and only thing God requires of us? A dozen answers flooded my mind. Fear? Obedience? Faith? Forgiveness? But I felt none of these were what Brother Soane was looking for. I was silent. When you know the answer, only then will you be ready to be a monk and scribe. Your work will be a true offering to God then. I gave him the kiss of peace and we pushed off. The water was calm and the wave crests rippled like writing on the sea. The sun was bright but cold, and the spray fresh on my face. It was a four-hour row to Knave Island, where we stopped to rest. The beach had sheltering, overhanging rock. We lit a small fire, and ate bread the monastery had given us, and drank milk from a skin bag. I leaned against a seaweed-covered rock and unrolled the page of scribing. The captain sat next to me and looked over my shoulder. Such knowledge, he said. I held the scroll up before us, then rolled it again. Your knowledge is more impressive. We would never survive this journey without it. The captain gazed at the sea and said, Sometimes you can know a great deal and still be lost. You will be lost in the end. Knowing isn't protection when the gale is high. A doctor can die of the disease he knows and cannot cure. A farmer who knows the land and the rising of every moon may lose it all in a drought or sudden frost. The sailor knows every cliff and rock of the shore, the names of every wind and the rhythm of the swells, but when the gale is high, he may still be lost. Knowledge is a fine thing, but nature scorns all knowledge in the end and says, I will take you now as it pleases me, Knowing or unknowing. I followed his gaze to the ocean, dark, impenetrable. I had come so far, but it was still a mystery as deep as the mystery of God, of death, of the mystery of my own heart. God knew all, but provided man only with endless mysteries. In death, knowledge would come or be unnecessary. But of all the unknown, only one question needed to be answered. 
What does God want of me? We entered the sea again, the familiar rocking. The wind picked up and we rode up and down over the swells, the water drumming under the skin of the boat. This time the tide was with us, and it was a few hours to Colonse, where we would pass the night before the last leg of the journey. Rust-colored cattle dotted the green slopes. The little bay was surrounded by long, protruding fingers of rock. As we hauled in, children ran to the beach, followed behind by their folk. The sailors scooped children into their arms, and the children cried, Stories! Tell us! At the head of the parents, the king arrived, trotting on short, stubby legs, his head and face framed in blonde curls and beard. He extended his hand, introducing himself as Kongal. John knew him already. This is Kanachtoch, a penitent on his way to Iona. The chief tossed his head and considered, then beamed. It might do. Come in. Let's eat and we'll tell our tales. I have two creatures I might send with you. We walked up the slope, past the cattle, to a farm of ten wattle and daub houses, their foundations green with spongy moss. The sweet smell of peat fires hung in the air. They noticed Aaron's limp immediately, his bandage soaked with blood, and some women insisted on tending to his wound. At first he resisted, but a comely girl with a wreath of flowers on her head took the lead, and he followed her, insisting he was in no pain, though his clenched jaw told otherwise. Inside the king's house, our host sat me down on the one cushioned chair. For he is a wise and learned man, taking the white martyrdom. A child asked, What is the white martyrdom? Kongal said, A pure life, my little rascal. I replied, The green martyrdom is the martyrdom of penance. The white martyrdom is exile in the monastery, giving up everything you have including your kith and kin. And there is the red martyrdom. That is blood sacrifice. As many saints have given, Kongal said, and any monk is ready for. The children looked in wonder. I'll show you my scribing. I got up and spread the parchment out on the table. Is this the word of God? Our host asked in awe. Everyone crowded around the table to see. It's a psalm. In Latin, it reads, Sacrifice and offering you do not want, but ears open to obedience you gave me. Holocausts and sin offerings you do not require. So I said, Here I am. Your commands for me 
are written in the scroll. To do your will is my delight. My God, your law is in my heart. They all listened in a hush. A sigh arose when I was finished. Does the Bible contain every word? If there was a word not in the Bible, can it still be written? asked a little girl. I don't know if the Bible contains every word. That's a good question. I don't think that it does. But every word can be written, any word you can think of. People have written many things. Histories, saints' lives, philosophy. Even in the good book there is a saying. Of the writing of books there is no end. But once you write it down, it becomes the word of God? I considered. The girl's mother spoke. Of course. Anything written is holier than sounds that fade in the wind. I smiled. A doctor of the church could not have answered better. And I absorbed their admiring looks, even absorbed the mother's wisdom, as if I had answered so wisely myself. That night, to pay for my supper, I was bidden to tell a story. I told of saints. There was Malua, who as a child accidentally turned blackberry juice into wine so that he and his friends got drunk. There was Mokhta, who lit a fire wizards couldn't quench, and Mullin, who rescued a wren from a cat, and a fly from a wren. I slept soundly on the floor of the king's house. The next morning when I awoke, someone was scrubbing my feet. A boy washed my feet with a soft rag. Who are you? I am Kayla. I am a masterless slave. With your permission, I'd like to join you and sell myself to the monastery. The boy before me was slight, but might have been older than he appeared. Something about the strength of his arms and the size of his hands suggested manhood, though his face was young, with no downy hair yet. Fawn-like ears poked through blonde curls. Yes, Kayla, I do remember our meeting. Did I know then that years later I would write this, my story, for you? I couldn't have predicted the horrible disaster to come. When you came to me and asked what prayer was for, and where love and God had gone. That was far in the future, beyond predicting. And yet, even then, when we met, there was some spark in your eyes, and I felt something, as if we had things to teach each other. Who was your master? I asked. Kayla dried my feet. My mother was slave to this house, and I was kept. I did all I could to make myself useful, but she died, and I have no place. To be honest, 
His voice dropped quietly. I don't think they understand how much I do here. They will miss me, but they say they don't need me. I wish to sell myself to a lord for my keeping, but I've found none who needs me. If I said yes, I would have to take responsibility for the boy, but it did not seem such a burden. Every man needs a lord, I said. Kayla nodded and looked at me with bright eyes. I felt there was something familiar about him, but didn't know why. Who was your father? I never knew him. My mother was a widow when she had me. We aren't from here. She was widowed and came here from Nave, seeking a place, and was a slave to this house. She didn't know she was with child until she arrived here. Kayla sat with his knees drawn up, and his mien was simple and modest. They've been good to me, but I am becoming a landless man, and there's no place for me here. Well, you're welcome to come with me, but of course I can give you no guarantee there will be a place for you at Iona. Kayla gave a reserved smile. Oh, thank you. I have strength and skills. I only hope to prove myself. I smiled back. I suppose I'm in the same boat. While we were talking, the chief's family was rising, and Congal briskly ordered them to tasks. His wife, Judith, slowly combed her daughter's hair in the corner, a contrast to the bustle of activity, and I suddenly felt her eyes on me. I was going to speak to her when Congal abruptly slapped me on the back. So, the boy Kayla will go with you, is it? It would be a great favour to us. We're sending a calf to Iona, to the monastery, and he will tend it on the journey and tend to your needs. It's in my head that Iona is the place for him, and he will serve well there. You will watch him. I see you're already attached to him. We must go and load the calf onto the boat. Come, Kayla. Congal put his hand on Kayla's shoulder, and they went outside. Is Kayla going? asked the girl whose hair Judith was combing. She was the girl who had asked me about the written word the previous night. Yes, he's coming with me, I said. I don't want him to go. Shush, Judith said. The girl scrambled away from the comb. It's not true we don't need him. I said enough. Go out to the coop and gather eggs. Then let the chickens into the field to feed on the grubs. Kayla always helped me. Don't be selfish. You're big enough to do for yourself. Later I'll let you comb my hair. I won't ever comb your hair if you send him away. Judith swatted the girl's backside. She let out a shriek. As she ran by me, she said, I hate you. I wasn't sure if she meant her mother or me. I waited in front of Judith sensing she was going to say something. She put the comb into a leather-covered box. Everything about her manner 
as she began to gather her sewing things, was slow and deliberate. She picked up a blue tunic and settled it into her lap with the needle and thread. All this while she wasn't looking at me. Now she stared down at her mending. You will find the boy useful, she said. Why don't you? She sewed tiny stitches in yellow thread along the hem of the garment. His mother had the gift of second sight. She knew her place, of course, but she saw him destined for something grand. Perhaps she had her head in the clouds. I think she might have given him ideas, though. And, if he has such a destiny, it's not to be here. We have a king, my husband, and he has four sons. There's no place for ambition here, if ambition he has. I think his mother had ambitions, God rest her soul. She paused in her sewing and gave me a steady look. I don't say the boy ever acted proud, or even that he believed her prophecy. But I think perhaps he does have a destiny, and here is not the place for it. Not among my sons. I bowed my head. I understand. You will find him useful, I know. Don't let me keep you. I bowed again and went outside. On the beach, the king supervised as Kayla and Kongal's sons hobbled the calf and rolled her into the boat. It lowed with a piteous groan. Kayla put his arms around the calf and whispered in its ear, calming her as he stroked her head. Aaron's foot was cleanly bandaged, and the moss they had wrapped it in had reduced the swelling. The girls fussed over him in saying goodbye, stroking his brown curls as he blushed. The blonde girl and Judith followed with a basket of food. The girl threw her arms around Kayla, and I trembled to watch. But I told myself we were blessed. Kongal came up and thrust out his hand, and when I took it, Kongal grabbed me around the neck with the other hand and embraced me. It's a fine, holy thing, this journey. Thank you, he nodded toward the boat and Kayla. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your hospitality. Kayla gently pushed the little girl away, and she clung to her mother. My heart ached. I could not ignore it. Her face accused me, said this was not merely a holy mission, but one that called for sacrifice. I told myself Kayla would have left in any event. It was not I taking him away. I repeated that to myself, but it didn't relieve the weight on my shoulders. We pushed the boat with the lowing calf into the water, and I jumped in. I sat down across from Kayla, who drummed his fingers on the calf. 
And I will row, he asked the captain. Yes, in your turn. I like to keep busy, he stroked the calf. So you make the parchment from the calf skin, eh? A parchment is from sheepskin. From a cow, it's called vellum. Kayla stroked the calf's neck and said to it in a tender voice, Has the pen of God already written the gospel on your skin? For a long while, these words have stayed with me. After a pause, he asked, Did God put everything here on earth for our use? We are stewards of the earth. It's a responsibility, not a gift. Kayla nodded. It's a hard life is our fate. It's true, I know Jesus said consider the lilies. Fish are plentiful in the sea, and the sun and rain grow us oats and barley. But it's a hard life, no doubt. The king has many cares. Just tell me what to do, and keep me busy, and I'll sleep well. The boy's inquisitiveness intrigued me. He seemed restless and ready to act, and his active mind did not seem like one to be content, caring for animals and hoeing fields. I took the parchment from my bag and unrolled it before Kayla. What does this look like to one who can't read the words? I'm just wondering. The boy traced the letters with his finger. Fish hooks? Shears, pruning hooks, an ear, a snake, a cow horn, a pair of breasts, a cross. Have you ever seen a snake? No, but I sometimes dream of them. I know they glide like a rope on the ground, with a little forked tongue that lashes the air. He spoke to Eve, and his tongue touched her ear. I smiled. Just so. They bite with fangs like a cat. Really? And they live long by shedding their own skin when it's tight. Are there other creatures in the world? Strange creatures we've never seen? If you read the book by Isidore, he tells of all manner of strange beasts. Kayla looked at the sea. He spoke in a quiet, distant voice, touched by wonder. There are creatures we don't raise or feed or hunt or milk. Creatures not under our hand. There was a long pause while he thought. Are they dangerous to man, then? Isidore says dragons in the east fight with elephants, and when they shed blood, they make the red earth we use for our red ink. Kayla looked up with bright eyes. I like hearing new things. Tell me about this book. I told him all I could remember of Isidore's etymologies, until it was our turn to row. Gulls and gannets kited amid the rocky cliffs of Colonsay, 
as we sailed around it before we veered away north and west. We were on the open sea again, and the chop of the waves was higher. I lurched forward and back from the waist at each roll up and down, my eyes on the horizon to keep from getting sick. A thin line glowed between the low clouds and the sea. The clouds darkened and a light rain fell. I licked my chapped lips. Young Kayla proved himself well at the oar. His slight body was one taut muscle, stronger than one would guess. I wondered if the monastery would take him or if he would have to find his way back after all. He was taking a chance. I thought about suggesting that, rather than become a slave, Kayla asked to become a monk. But perhaps he didn't have the calling. A gannet floated overhead, so gleaming white, another small creature that was strong as any man, to hold itself aloft in the wind with taut sinew and hollow bone. It descended and skimmed over the water, showing us the way. A dark land appeared from the clouds behind the tall torrents rocks. But the tide worked against us. We rowed hard. The chop had died down, but the smooth water belied the heavy current that pulled us back. The captain struck the bell in time to keep us at the pace. Suddenly the wind rose, a twist of the wind that caught the sail and pulled the boat with a fierce blow toward the high jutting rocks offshore. Weather sharpened crags, looming in the twilight the sun glinting on their orange and black tiger stripes. We lurched toward the immovable boulders, which were ready to grind the boat into splinters. John took the steering oar with both hands and ordered the sail down. Kayla turned to me, his face white and tense. We veered closer, the waves pounding loud against the rocks. The spray mingled with the drops of sweat flying off the sailors' heads as we dragged the oars through the sea, the boat zigzagging in the confusion of the tide, running counter to the wind-blown chop of the waves. For a while, our rowing did nothing but keep us in place. We could make no progress. The shore was so tantalizingly close. The wind increased. The waves rose higher and we took on water. When we did move, we edged ever closer to the stacks of rock. The boat rocked and the calf bleated loudly. My breath was sucked out of my chest by the commotion. We were in danger of being swamped. We all rowed in unison now, driving the slender oars into the waves. My arms ached with trying to hold on to it in the force of the water. The tide surged, and the captain pushed the steering oar back as we lurched only feet from being dashed on the rocks. The boat shot to the side and flew out of danger on the crest of a wave. The beach was open before us, 
but we still struggled with the tide, and it was a hard row to move against the current. If we could get a little closer, we could jump out and drag the boat to shore. Pull! Only a little farther! Pull! He encouraged us. We began a loud chant, bellowing over the sound of the wind and the bleating calf. At last, the men jumped into the shallows with a coordinated grace and ran the boat up onto the beach, carrying it up the shore before sinking to their knees in exhaustion and a prayer of thanks. We were on Mull. Iona tomorrow, the captain said to me. A short distance now. I put my hand on the captain's shoulder. Tomorrow. I think I aged a few years on that one, Kayla said with a rueful, relieved smile. I smiled back. I feel like I've been on this boat for years. Since I was a boy. To be continued.